Welcome to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We're here today with Dr. Arthur Kim, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Viral Hepatitis Clinic in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. And we're here to talk about hepatitis C and the challenges of treating people who inject drugs. Eviral Hepatitis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. Learning objectives for this program include describe the outcomes of HCV treatment with direct-acting antivirals, DAAs, in persons with recent injection drug use, and identify barriers to the treatment of HCV for people who inject drugs. Dr. Kim has disclosed that he has no relationship with any product or service relevant to today's discussion, and he has indicated that he will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in his presentation. Dr. Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. PWID, People Who Inject Drugs. In your recent newsletter issue, Doctor, you presented the current research about the challenges and barriers to successfully eradicating hepatitis C in these individuals. What I'd like to do today is discuss how that information can impact clinical practice. So start us out, if you would, please, Doctor, with a patient scenario. Sure. You're seeing a 23-year-old man with a five-year history of opioid use disorder, transitioning to injection heroin use approximately three years ago. He's been diagnosed with hepatitis C infection for one and a half years and had recently confirmed viremia via an HCV RNA test showing 1.2 million international units per ml. His hepatitis C genotype is 3A and his ALT is 33. Since suffering his first overdose, resulting in a hospitalization, he has been attending a clinic for buprenorphine naloxone for the past seven months, but continues to use injection drugs approximately one to two times weekly. He's referred for hep C treatment, but arrives 20 minutes late to your office appointment. At the present time, if you were seeing this patient right now, would you consider him a candidate for hepatitis C treatment? Well, the first principle is that the AASLD IDSA guidelines suggest that virtually all patients infected with hepatitis C should be treated, and that's regardless of injection drug use or other conditions. He is very unlikely to have advanced liver disease and may be decades away from liver-related complications. However, he is at risk for transmission to others, especially with use of contaminated needles, syringes, or other injection equipment. And so there are potential public health benefits to treating the highest risk populations even before they have advanced liver disease. That makes sense, doctor. But let me play devil's advocate for the moment. This patient is continuing to inject. And a conventional wisdom says that people who inject drugs before they're eligible for hep C treatment, they should be required to prove they can maintain sobriety, at the very least remain sober for several months before treatment. How would you respond to that? Well, firstly, Our clinics have more or less treated a lot of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. These are hepatitis C-infected persons who don't have active or recent substance use. They may have resolved these behaviors years or even decades ago. But now we are faced with more and more patients who have recently injected drugs and have recently been diagnosed. Unfortunately, many providers and insurers have maintained policies and guidelines from the interferon era to require sobriety before treatment. And this is largely in place due to cost containment. 
However, even more recently, the cost of these treatments have gone down significantly. And so at this time, I think this attitude is a bit outdated. Uh, Still on the devil's advocate side, you noted this individual was late for his appointment. Doesn't that give you concern about his willingness to take his treatment seriously? It's hard to treat folks who aren't physically in front of you, but this patient has made efforts to be in your office, which is that first step to treatment. So even if he's late, I'm still going to try to treat him. And it is hard work to treat someone with active substance use, especially given many of the associated psychosocial problems that are often present. However, we learned from patients, for instance, with HIV, another infection with great public health importance, and also associated with many psychosocial issues, that it's possible to successfully treat patients, especially if you meet patients where they are. It's basically a myth that people who inject drugs, even recently, can't be successfully treated. Tell us about the evidence that debunks that myth. So there were studies that showed that active drug users could be treated that dates back to the interferon era. However, it's unclear if we were just treating a select group of patients willing to try interferon, which of course, as you remember, has a whole host of side effects. And so we may have been selecting patients in those studies who are motivated and perhaps had fewer barriers to care than the average person who's actively using drugs. So we turn to evidence now in the era of direct acting antivirals. Two recent studies that are reviewed in this newsletter issue, they're known as C-Edge, CoStar, and Simplify, are multi-site trials across Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and sites in North America. And these included over 400 individuals, many of whom continue to use substances even during this treatment. These studies show that adherence in people who are actively using was overall quite good, even comparable to non-drug users in other trials. Moreover, cure rates in those two studies were excellent and also comparable to those who are not actively using drugs. So given that now we have pangenotypic regimens that are safe and effective, these two studies are evidence that support the recommendations I mentioned earlier that suggest that we should treat everyone, even those with active substance use disorder. What about reinfection? If this patient is still actively injecting drugs, and if that makes him a risk for transmitting HCV to others, isn't he at a similar risk for reinfection? So reinfection is a frequent argument against treating this population. However, I'd point out that at this time, many parts of the United States are actually reporting increases in hepatitis C cases related largely to injecting drug use behaviors. And the rationale really should be the opposite, that we won't reduce new cases without reducing the number of people who are able to infect others. And this sort of treatment as prevention paradigm, there are many analogies in other communicable diseases like STDs and in HIV, the treatment as prevention paradigm. So what is the evidence? Well, first we had modeling studies, but now we actually have real world data emerging from places such as the Netherlands and Iceland that suggest that reducing the prevalence of infection in these high risk groups by treatment results in decline in incident cases. Reinfection rates also after hep C treatment have been studied around the world in these high risk groups. And in general, particularly for people who inject drugs, are lower than one might think, often lower than, say, 5% per year. So I'd also point out that we need more data from U.S.-based settings, as many of these studies do emanate from Europe and Australia. Other medical priorities for people who inject drugs, what would those be? 
Well, first and foremost, I would say harm reduction. Harm reduction would reduce his risk of overdose as well as reinfection. And so in this particular case, his use, while it's ongoing, may be minimized as he's on buprenorphine-based therapy. His risk factors, though, may continue or increase based on the natural history of opioid use disorder. Another thing we find is that we need to identify and address problem alcohol use, if that's also there. And then we really do have to vaccinate against other liver viral infections, particularly hepatitis A and hepatitis B. And they are unfortunately rising in this population in the United States. There are outbreaks ongoing. And so when I see a patient such as this, even if I don't know their previous vaccination history, I really make it a priority to vaccinate. There is no harm in giving additional vaccines, even if they've been vaccinated before. And another important principle that it's okay to give these vaccines off schedule. Another big priority is the prevention of bacterial infections, such as skin abscesses, as well as endocarditis. These are very serious, potentially life-threatening infections that occur and are rising in people who inject drugs. And so teaching in our clinic does involve talking about safe injection techniques, as well as providing access to harm reduction, such as syringe and needle exchange facilities. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Arthur Kim from Mass General in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. Eviral Hepatitis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with viral hepatitis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eViral Hepatitis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eViral Hepatitis Review, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. Welcome back to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Arthur Kim from the Viral Hepatitis Clinic at Mass General about the clinical challenges of treating hepatitis C in people who inject drugs. Let's continue in that vein and with a follow-up on the patient we've been discussing. So, doctor, if you would please, refresh us and take us to the next stage of his treatment. Earlier, we met a 23-year-old man with opioid use disorder injecting heroin for three years and confirmed viremia with genotype 3 hepatitis C infection. He's continuing to inject heroin intermittently. As I practice in a state which allows treatment in these situations, he is authorized for treatment with a pangenotypic regimen. Midway through treatment, he arrives with his 21-year-old girlfriend who has recently tested positive for hepatitis C via antibody. She also reports intermittent use of ejection drugs, including sharing needles and syringes with her boyfriend when they use together. She asks whether she also can be treated. They are both living in separate halfway houses after a period of homelessness last year. Focusing on his girlfriend, what should be the clinician's first step? The first step is to confirm viremia, as this young lady may have spontaneously cleared. If identified during the acute phase, young woman may have a greater chance at spontaneously clearing the virus. And so at the moment, 
based on the information we have, she may actually be cleared and thinking she is positive for the virus based on the antibody test. Because of this misconception, she may increase her risks with injection, thinking that she already was infected. If she's viremic, she may have the same genotype that suggests that they are part of the same transmission network. Ideally, we'd try to treat both of these individuals as if they relapse or increase their injecting behaviors they are likely to use together in the future. This sort of bring your friends approach, meaning treating others within the network of the patient, is something that we're trying to accomplish in our clinic. She's a young woman. What are the additional considerations in her treatment? For young persons largely under 30 years of age, opioid use disorder affects men and women equally in the United States. She should be prioritized as a candidate for treatment, as she is also a woman of childbearing age. If pregnant, she may transmit to the newborn, which occurs, by the way, at birth and not through breastfeeding. While there are no specific teratogenic concerns, at the moment, the safety of direct-acting antivirals in pregnant women has not yet been established. But nonetheless, if she tests positive for virus, We would talk to her about pregnancy prevention as we'd want to test her for pregnancy both before and during treatment, and thus we'd try to ensure effective birth control during treatment. What other barriers to hepatitis C eradication is this couple likely to face? Well, these patients often have a variety of psychosocial barriers, particularly for those with coexisting hepatitis C and substance use disorder. There is often mental illness and unstable housing, as described in this scenario. On that topic, there are new data, including in the city of Boston with our Healthcare for the Homeless program, regarding successful treatment of those who are marginally housed. Another big threat in this population is incarceration, because if that happens, it interrupts often treatment with DAAs. So I try to ask, in a non-judgmental fashion, about pending legal actions as we are contemplating treatment. It's also a good idea as we start treatment to provide a letter that they can present to any, say, jail or prison medical provider in case they end up in the situation where their treatment might be interrupted. At times, if we're able to hear about these situations, we've been able to deliver meds into these facilities. Another approach that might be helpful for people with a multiplicity of psychosocial problems are patient navigators. These are folks who can help coach people with these extra risk factors by providing extra counseling, motivational interviewing, and additional referrals. They often come with them to the appointment, for instance. And in the newsletter, we review one such successful program called Check Hep C, which employed navigators in New York City. We've learned that it often takes a team to achieve success. So in addition to our traditional clinic-based nursing and social work, We found that community-based organizations deploying these peer navigators can be very helpful. In the end, what we're trying to do is meet patients where they're at. We're trying to provide culturally competent care and to be non-judgmental and welcoming. Some hep C clinics are able to provide expedited appointments, sometimes same day as meeting other providers or even drop-in hours. What we're trying to accomplish is that our clinic is not the barrier to receipt of hepatitis C care. I need to digress for a moment, Dr. Kim. You mentioned Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless program. I want to let our listeners know that two of that program's directors have authored an upcoming issue of our sister publication, EHIV Review. 
They analyze the recent literature and discuss in depth the challenges of homelessness and incarceration from an HIV as well as a hepatitis C perspective. For more information, I'd ask our listeners to go to ehivreview.org. All right, end of digression. Returning to our case, Doctor, I'd like to continue to focus on the young woman. She's an injection drug user, but unlike her boyfriend, she's not in a substance use treatment program. Should she be? In this case, the young woman may benefit from opioid agonist therapy, such as methadone or buprenorphine. The literature shows that opioid agonist therapy may reduce not only harm from the drugs themselves, such as overdose risk, but also reduces incidence of hepatitis C in people who inject drugs. In this newsletter, we reviewed a recent meta-analysis done by the Cochrane Collaboration. Across multiple studies around the world, this meta-analysis showed a reduction of about 50% with opioid agonist therapy. What it means is, on a practical basis, our clinic should forge close connections to facilitate these therapies, as well as harm reduction. A few ID providers I know have begun to offer this to help patients get through not only hepatitis C treatment, but also other treatments, such as for endocarditis. If you were to treat both this young man and this young woman, how would you follow them after hepatitis C cure? Unlike those with a long-standing, decades-long history of hepatitis C, like most baby boomers who are at higher risk for liver-related complications, these are younger folks who are not likely to have much liver disease or much liver fibrosis. And so post-treatment counseling often has a different focus than I would provide for an older hepatitis C-infected patient. And I would focus mostly on preventing reinfection. So reinfection rates seem to be lower than primary infection rates when we're talking about people who've received curative treatments. But we still want to prevent reinfection, which may result in need for a second round of treatment. So I also counsel about other ways we've seen people get reinfected. Rarely we've seen medical tourism associated with hepatitis C but more commonly, unsafe tattooing, as well as injectable steroids for bodybuilding. Currently, I offer longer-term follow-up for patients during recovery to monitor at least yearly for reinfection. And there may be other benefits to seeing patients more closely. I've talked to qualitative researchers who feel that more connection with hep C providers as they go through their cure can have additional psychological benefits. To put a problem such as hepatitis C into their past can be transformative. And by the way, these conversations are also extremely rewarding to providers. Well, thank you for bringing us today's cases and discussion, Dr. Kim. I've got one last question for you, and it's future-oriented. Give us your expert opinion, if you would, please. What questions does new research need to answer to help clinicians provide better patient care to PWID living with hepatitis C infection? Much of the data regarding treatment of people who inject drugs with hepatitis C derives from Western Europe or Australia. So we need more data from North America and particularly the United States, as well as other parts of the world where injection drug use is an emerging problem, such as pockets in Tanzania, India, Southeast Asia, and Eastern Europe. To that end, there's a large U.S.-based trial known as HERO, treating with a pangenotypic regimen over 600 persons with a recent history of drug use defined as within three months at eight different sites around the country. And we are looking at adherence rates, cure rates, and reinfection rates after treatment. This trial, not surprisingly, may show that situations for drug users may differ in places like West Virginia with lower access to services and especially harm reduction compared to a place like New York City. 
We also need more data regarding hepatitis C and injection drugs other than opioids, such as crystal methamphetamine. Further research regarding best practices, policies, and programs to reach this population and help them proceed along the cascade of care to curing their hepatitis C. Well, thank you for sharing your insights, doctor. To wrap things up, let's review today's key takeaway messages in light of our learning objectives. So, our first learning objective the outcomes of HCV treatment with direct-acting antivirals in persons with recent injection drug use. Doctor? For our first patient scenario, we faced a decision to either defer treatment because of his active drug use or to try to treat him. So the first question is, will he be successfully treated? Well, aside from anecdotal experience, which describes successful treatment, There are two important published studies involving over 400 persons that treated those with recent injection drug use, showing good safety, adherence, and outcomes similar to those who don't have recent drug use. The next question is, will he just become reinfected? In those studies, while there were some reinfections, they weren't not frequent enough to cancel out the benefits of curing the vast majority of patients. So from a hepatitis C provider standpoint, the main take-home for me is that it really is a myth that we can't treat these higher-risk patients and that I should try to design our system to make it easier for such patients to be treated, not harder, and not sending away patients such as the one we met in the patient scenario. So this means also providing counseling and access to harm reduction. And our second learning objective the barriers to the treatment of HCV in people who inject drugs. Increasingly, we are meeting patients who are like the ones presented today, facing a whole host of additional issues such as marginal housing, court involvement, family disruption, and clearly it takes more resources to treat those with these problems, especially those with recent or active drug use. So I try to partner with our colleagues in substance use care as well as patient navigator organizations and of course, any friends or family around the patient. Then another big barrier is insurance. It's doubly frustrating when you have successfully linked a patient, they're in your clinic right in front of you and they're ready to be treated, but you can't obtain insurance approval. So for those practicing in places where there are insurance restrictions or a lack of harm reduction, we should advocate for change as denial of providing these hepatitis C treatments or harm reduction is neither patient-centered nor evidence-based. So while it's harder, in many ways, it's also more gratifying to meet these challenges of curing and preventing hepatitis C to help each patient one at a time. And so hopefully moving forward, we'll work together again as a team to eliminate hepatitis C in the coming years. From Harvard Medical School and the Viral Hepatitis Clinic at Mass General, Dr. Arthur Kim, thank you for participating in this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's really been a pleasure. For eViral Hepatitis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eViral Hepatitis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, OBGYNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, and other clinicians diagnosing or managing patients with viral hepatitis.
This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuous nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute of Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eViral Hepatitis Review via email, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Eviral Hepatitis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.